0: Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, May 25th. Today we have an interview with Eugene Ung. Uh, Good interview. I like his portfolio. I like his style. Um, He's based in Singapore.
1: Yep, and we cover coupon and Sea limited I don't think there's anything else to say on that. Got a little boots on the ground research for Southeast Asia. He knows these stocks well. He talks about the
0: landscape as well and kind of investing in that area and how it's a little different than the West.
1: And he knows growth investing well. So, yeah. I mean, not much else to say. Really smart investor. Happy to have him on. Hopefully, we can get him on again sometime.
0: And before we get to the show, uh, we have a word from our friends, our sponsor, our partners, Seven Investing.
1: Uh, Getting close to the new month, which is exciting.
0: Kind of eager. Um, but if you use our code CCM, you get ten dollars off. So it's only seven dollars for your first month. You get We've seven. been raking in the signups, so just keep doing that. That is good. Um, that is great good. for us.
1: Yep, that is good, and it's good for you too because you get seven stock picks a month, all across different yeah. asset classes or not asset classes, excuse me, industries. Yeah, and I think they're all stocks. Yeah, they're all I, I, asset classes is not the right word. It's definitely industries within within the stock market, and they're always great. You know, it's 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 really helpful when building your portfolio. Good idea generation,
0: definitely. Yeah. All right. Uh, without further ado, here we go. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now please enjoy this episode. Today we are welcomed by Eugene Ung. I think I'm saying that right. Uh, And he is the founder. uh, I guess I don't know the exact title, but he runs Vision Capital. Um, We met on Twitter, I think through the Fintwit Summit, actually. uh, And we connected through that. But before we dive into some of the companies that we're going to talk about, why don't you give us a little bit of background about yourself? Kind of how'd you
2: get into finance? um, And then
0: how would you describe your strategy?
2: first of all thanks a lot ryan and brad for inviting me to, you know, to chat money on, on the podcast thanks i think it's a, it's a great opportunity to connect with you guys and, and, your, and your audience uh, a little bit of background for, for me um, i started uh, my career i mean i started my education in investing uh, in singapore uh, did economics and finance and uh, after that when i graduated that was back in 2008 so it was actually in the financial crisis i actually joined city as a management associate there for three for three years uh, and after which I moved to J.P. Morgan. I was there for eight years, covering largely on the foreign exchange sales to, to corporates. So all your large, uh, I'll say your your you know your top Forbes uh, one two hundred names, those are the kind of companies that I covered. So from that, I think investing really sparked on about I would say eight years ago, where I actually had an accident. So uh, it was an accident where it was one fateful night. And I remember the eve of Christmas. I was having a lot of drinks at a beach club, uh, and I decided to do a somersault into a very shallow swimming pool. So the top of my head hit the bottom of a swimming pool, and um, before I knew it, before I knew it, I heard a very loud pop sound, and I realized my neck had broken. So fast forward, I actually broke my uh, my C one, which is my um, uh, the C one in, in the cervical surfic- 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 spine, and they actually call it a Jefferson fracture. So how serious it is is that. Um, if they, if if you were to actually hang you, you don't actually die of suffocation. You die because the C two, the bone actually presses against your spinal cord, and you die right away. So that was how close it was to that. Uh, and the doctors would say you're actually a living miracle because 99 percent of the people who get this would have died, and the 99 percent of them who have survived this would have been uh, paralyzed in some form of the. Other. Wow. So for me to be actually walking here, it's it's actually a living miracle. And 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 actually the bad part of it. Is, still, is joined, but the front part is still open, even to this very day. And uh, the doctor's saying, you know, you my neck will probably never, you know, never get healed. So I'm living with a broken neck, and uh, and that's how to me, I guess, from that really, I think every day, it's very meaningful. It's very it's very purposely driven because I'm here to live a part of my life, you know, to 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 give back, to do something for 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 you know for the world. And and, and 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 everything so i think that really is the biggest thing i think and that also i think sparked a change in my life where uh, i need to do something with it and i was and I've always been very mathematically inclined and that's where i kind of realized okay you know i'm kind of good at numbers i always like equities i had did um, you know stock equity research internships prior so research had always been kind of my forte but i never really liked writing uh, but that's where I realized, okay, I'm, I'm kind of good with investing. So oh, I think I, I, I kind of like, that's where my passion was. So I started on, on this journey, on this quest to really learn from the best investors in the world. I want to find out, I want to make this game, you know, really work for me, right? So I started reading, you know, Warren Buffett and, and, and everything. And I started on a quest and I realized, oh, and I actually chanced upon the Motley Fool. And that's where I spent almost, I would say, three years trying to understand investing and trying to find out what are the success factors in investing both on selecting stocks and also myself as a mindset that I need to adopt to make it right. So after after doing all of that, I actually wrote a book just last year, was actually right uh, during when COVID started. And of course, you know, when your portfolios are down 30, 40%, it's really a true test. And and writing that and trying to get it published, I was like, oh, wow. I mean, if I could get get it published, it was really a true testament because I could feel that whatever I was writing was going through into, into my investing strategy. So, Vision Capital is something that I've been um, I've been investing in the in the market since um, the March of 2017. So, almost next next year will hit five years, and that's really kind of been uh, the strategy. Obviously, has outperformed the market every year, not this year so far year to date. But uh, you know, we will see. I think we're playing a very very long game. So, the way if I think about investing, right? Investing, if you if you look at it in the U.S. stock market, it always moves from the bottom left to the top right. Over a very long run. If you look, if you take about if you take a hundred year horizon, it always is, is almost that, right? And investing to me, if you think about it, on any given day, when you buy a single stock, you probably have about 51, 49% chance. So you have 51% chance of making money. Because the because the stock market goes up over the long term. Now when you do when you go up to about five years, that probability of winning goes up to about 65, 70%. Now, when you stretch it out to 10 years, that probably goes out around 80%. And when you go to 20 years and beyond, you have 100% probability of making money, effectively not losing money. Now, yet by just holding for the long term, you have already shifted the odds of success 100% in your favor. Just think about that math really really, for that moment, right? So now, when they say really about thinking about holding long term, I wanted to go there and be very statistically driven. Why do you need to hold for the long term? And when understanding that math behind it, made sure that I really needed to invest for the long term. And then after that, it was really about finding stocks, finding companies. And and what I realized is that in companies, this is three things that always happens. We are rising revenues, rising profits and rising cash flows always result almost in rising stock prices. So fundamentally, we're always trying to figure out, okay, if that is the case, and I'm trying to find winners that ultimately beat the stock market, I need to be finding companies that are constantly growing revenues, cash flows and profits over the very long run, and better if their profit margins can continuously increase, which means profits and cash flows grow even faster than revenues. Those are the companies that I really, really love, which means the stock price will go up, right? So if you find me a company that is growing 100% year on year for five years or 10 years, it is almost very difficult for the company to not beat the stock market. And consequently, if you have declining revenues, profits and cash flows, you know, the stock prices is going to come off and and, and it, it's, a, it's a natural consequence. It might not happen in one day, one week, or even one year, but over the three to five years, that will happen. So my investing strategy has largely dominated around just finding that that, that we are finding companies. Now, when we talk about revenues and you know, cash flows and profits, you are really finding durable companies because in the stock market, there's been a study that's been done, right? Um, 25,000 companies, about 4% of the companies account for about 100% of the stock market returns over the last uh, 100 years or so. And of that, 0.4% of about 100 or so companies accounted for about 50% of the entire uh, out of the entire returns. Now, if you think about it, we have a very large pond of, of, of stocks to, and to choose from. But a very simple fact, only a very small percentage of companies are really worth investing and for us to be holding for the very long term to be generating that. So when we ask as investors, we really want to outperform and to beat the market, you have got to be really fishing that the very small pond of the very of, of that very big pond, and constantly be finding that. When you're finding that, those winners, right? Then you know, those those winners will naturally take your portfolio basically in the right direction. So that has really been my investing strategy. So I try to find companies that you know um, that are basically disruptors. They are they are trying to change the market. They, I like companies with network effects, you know, strong 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 competitive advantages. I like I like obviously rising revenues, rising profits, rising uh, rising 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 uh, cash flows. Uh, I like ultimately very durable companies. I like platforms. I like net. I like companies with network effects. I liked, uh, uh, like, uh, yeah. So I mean, the way also like founder led companies. I prefer founder led and founder owned with high insider ownerships because they have skin in the game but not necessarily also. They can be very top-notch you know, top managers. They can be professionally managed as well. So I think that's always a kind of good mix for me. So really find, find, finding all of those. And I, I think the one thing as well, the thing way to think about it is companies, the, the balance sheet also has to be strong because if they have high debt and when something happens, the companies fall. And what I don't like is I prefer my companies to be net cash or preferably have much lesser debt versus, versus cash such that if anything happens, companies don't don't collapse so if you can think about it every step that I take uh, in my investing philosophy is really trying to rel- trying to el- eliminate the downside trying to remove anything that doesn't work and just be invested in companies that basically the way it only goes is upside so if that you think about sense. it yeah
1: that and makes total sense
0: yeah. you're you're based in Singapore right and I think that's an area or Southeast Asia broadly is an area where a lot of investors are fascinated by. There's some prominent companies that have come out of there. I think Seed Limited's one that a lot of people on Twitter, at least, love. Um, so why don't you talk a little bit about sort of the infrastructure there? How has that kind of evolved over the last decade, I guess, the infrastructure and the economy?
2: Yeah, I think Southeast Asia has been growing, has always been there, I think it is. But yes, I think over the last 5, 10, uh, 15 years, it started taking taking place because I think it's largely driven by China. China has had that growth over the last 20, 30 years, right? And I think now that that shift after China has been growing, has now shifted to, to, the next focus has shifted to Southeast Asia. I think in Southeast Asia, you really got to think about it as probably the the six six largest countries, and the largest is Indonesia. Indonesia's population is roughly half that of Southeast Asia, around 250 uh, million or so, followed by Vietnam and Thailand. And then after that, you have the smaller countries like Philippines, Malaysia, and then lastly, Singapore, right? Slightly different as you compare to like the EU zone because every, border, every, every country, they're also separate. In the EU, every country is kind of beside each other. You can take a railway network and you can just get to one country within you know, a, couple, a matter of hours. In Southeast Asia, it's, it's not landlocked in the, in the EU. You have to travel overseas, uh, or, I mean, on ships or on flight to get from one country to another. They also culturally, they speak different languages, culturally very different, politically very, very different, and economically, obviously very, very different as well. So I think Southeast Asia itself, it it is extremely different, but I think with the way to think about it, I think it has grown tremendously. Infrastructure has been a play, and I think specifically, I think the internet itself has been a large key driver of enablement for individuals to get access. So when I look at internet driving, I think three main things that I'm seeing really on on the space is largely e-commerce payments because we have been using a lot of paper money but i think e-commerce uh, payments has specifically been growing massively and i think logistics obviously supporting the e-commerce bit has also been been growing so i think southeast asia itself i think has has taken a bit more of the spotlight and you can see a lot of the, some of the unicorns that have come in out from southeast asia are specifically really addressing this and when you can see them addressing in this, this segments, They've actually grown and grown and grown along 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 those lines as well.
1: Right. And speaking a bit more on that, uh, we're going to be talking about two companies Wong, one, C Limited, that you already mentioned. We're going to be talking Coupang as well, which is in South Korea, but rumored to be moving into Southeast Asia. Uh, but before we do, Hayden Capital had a good write up that Southeast Asia. He was arguing that they're at a positive tipping point where historically when GDP per capita in a region hits four thousand U.S. dollars, uh, probably inflation adjusted is the numbers he's using. Then you hit a tipping point where everyone gets, you know, excess income and you can start reinvesting into, into more services. Do you see that happening over there? I know Singapore is a little different than other countries, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Or just looking maybe for some boots on the ground uh, research.
2: Yeah, I, I think Southeast Asia. It's really, I would say, it has been turning. I think that it's really on the, on that tipping point. It's been growing. So, I I, I do share very similar thoughts with with, uh, with with him. I think directionally, we are definitely correct. I think the, the real biggest growth in Southeast Asia is the growth of the of of the middle class, because if you think about it, in China, for example, the real growth of China was the growth of the middle class, where you have massive consumption coming in and when massive consumption coming in, you drive growth. Of a lot of businesses, of e-commerce, you know, of, of everything across the street, and I think in Southeast Asia, specifically in in Indonesia, Thailand, Philippines, uh, and Vietnam, especially, these are the countries that are growing it massively at, at like high double digit, like almost twenty to thirty percent year on year kind, of, kind of kind of kind of growth. When you're growing that massively, I think th- this is really the inflection point that I think is, in Southeast Asia will be really a, a, a space to, to look at.
1: Right. Okay. And then now let's go into, I think what a lot of people are looking for, uh, the, a company that I believe you follow. I'm not sure if you own it. Uh, you don't have to disclose if you don't want to, but it's coupon new IPO out of South Korea. So to kick things off, we tend to think Kupong has is building a strong moat with that, you know, the Amazon-esque, JD.com-esque model with e-commerce. Do you agree or disagree with that? And then what sort of competition do they have in South in South Korea? Yeah.
2: Uh, yeah, I think coupon is Coupons a great company. I think specifically I do agree with you. I think they're really trying to build a strong mode. Um, the e-commerce play is is, 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 very, is very interesting. Largely in e-commerce, it's split between 1P and 3P. 1P is very similar to what I would say like your Amazon and your JD.com in China, in which you own the end-to-end from a logistics standpoint. And basically you hold, you carry you carry in, you sell to the buyers and sellers. Whereas 3P, basically, you're just merely a platform supporting buyers and sellers on the platform, right? And I think Coupon itself started off primarily as the 1P with holding all the inventory, and that's why they could do it overnight, uh, fast deliveries and everything. So if you look at JD.com, for example, right, when you own the infrastructure and when you can deliver goods, you have an unrivaled uh, advantage over any of the e-commerce players. So I'll give you an example. If I order something on JD.com in China, you can easily get it within a day or two, even. Right? Whereas you order something on, on, on Alibaba's platform, it takes you days, if not weeks. So it's, it's a tremendous advantage and where people are trying to buy, you know, they, they value time time over for, for, the, for the item to deliver over anything else. So when when you think about it, when you really own the end-to-end chain, it's extreme it's extremely valuable. And I think that's where coupon really comes in. And that is clearly evident, right? So if you think about it, because they own the entire chain. When they're doing deliveries, then they can actually deliver it in that you know that, that reusable packaging, that, that that bags, which they're delivering the groceries. They can they can do the they can do next day dawn delivery, ordering something before midnight, delivering before 7 a.m. and they can even process returns without pack- packaging. Now, if you're doing a three P delivery type of, of infrastructure, you never get to that kind of 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 depth. And and doing it, and I think really that's where their moat is and that strength. And as you can see in coupon's growth rates, that's where over the last I would say three four years, all their their growth rates over the rest of the competitors in, in South Korea has just taken off tremendously. And that's where they've actually you know started off you know way way much smaller, but they've actually now became became almost the leader across uh, across most of the platforms. Now, if I think about it in competition in in, in South Korea it's actually largely domestic and very hyper-local, you know, with close to very little foreign competition. And the way I think about it is, uh, I'll split it it into into largely four different main segments. The first one, we have kind of the incumbent open market platforms, which is, uh, if you think about it, eBay, Uh, eBay Korea is basically G market or or very auction market, which they're trying to sell, by the way. (laughs) Uh, You have, of course, SK Telecom's uh, 11th Street, Uh, uh, Then you have the second variation, which is logistics and obviously 1P driven, which is coupon. And you have the third one, kind of like the mega platform, super app players like Naver, uh, Line, and Kakao Commerce. Uh, And I think you have the fourth one, which is like a a bit on like, not say a big box, but more like a big retailers online mall such as SSG, Lotte On. And the fifth one, individual mall apps, uh, Musinga, ZigZag, and Market Curly. If you think about it, it looks fragmented but i think when it comes to an e-commerce platform seemingly seems to be a quite fragmented a lot right and i i would see this drastically changing over the next i would say five ten fifteen years where it becomes almost a like a winner's takes most kind of kind of scenario rather than than a fragmented. because i think that tends to be the case when you have network effects and, and it and it comes into it. So I think directionally, I think coupon, I would expect coupon to start in, taking market share. If they don't you know, consistently over over a couple of quarters and even years, that would definitely concern me. But uh, you know, I think getting getting their market share and growing faster than a lot of the competitors. And I think if I look at the, the overall landscape, they have actually been growing faster than all of the competitors and taking market share. And that gives me a lot of comfort. Because clearly they have been doing it very well, right? And I think interesting about coupon is they have been pivoting when they, when, 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 they, when, they, when, they, when they, started, they started as a very different business pivoted, pivoted to, and they started more like a Groupon like business pivoted right. to yeah. to, to eBay like business. And then after that, you know, stop the IPO and then now pivoted to kind of like a three P one P type of business. So I like it that, you know, when a company, when a company keeps pivoting and is able to constantly pivot, it also shows me, you know, this is not the end goal. This is not the end state. Right it can continuously grow and that's where I I, I think uh, it can continuously outperform it, its competition.
1: Yeah, uh, you've th- been seeing the the charts that I think you posted online. It's just coupons market share is going up and to the right and everyone else is going down, down and to the right. So, I mean, if they continue with that, all things are golden.
0: Yeah, and when we picture, like when we were when we were reading that S1 and it was like, all right, well, your deliveries, as long as you order before midnight, will be there before 7 a.m. or you can just take whatever your returns are, click a button and throw it outside your door. That sounded so nice to us as consumers. Um, And so that was kind of automatically pretty compelling, but are there any other parts to their business that you like any other, I guess, growth opportunities that you think they can go into?
2: Yeah. I I think the, I think coupon right now, The biggest opportunity where i see in terms of of margins and everything they've been actually expanding to the 3p business and the 3p business tends to be higher off that of higher margins and i think the the immediate play over the next you know couple of years will be the expansion from 1p to 3p that will bring higher margins uh and improved overall profitability of the business make it make it make it even you know stronger cash cow because with any real e-commerce business it's actually the, the, the negative cash conversion cycle, which is basically when, when someone really buys an item, they pay, you get, you get funds upfront. And, and after they deliver the items, only then payments are uh, then paid out to the suppliers. So because of that cycle, of that cash conversion cycle, you actually have that cash flow and you have positive cash com- conversion cycle, you know, uh, working dynamic. So you theoretically, the best e-commerce platforms will never actually go bankrupt because you just have constantly that cash flow and that cash upfront. And 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 that's what I really like and, and to and to see. And, and that, that is starting to be very, very clearly uh, you know, evident in Kopong. Um, I think leveraging on that logistics, supporting that three piece, I think that, that would be key. Uh, next two things that I really like, is advertising. I think they've been growing they've been trying to grow the advertising pool, similar like Amazon, which also has been you know, growing the advertising space on their end, supporting that. So I think that helps to overall improve margins on the overall e-commerce business. I think payments is, 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 is they're they they trying their best they're obviously, you know, in South Korea, there are other larger payment players. But I think leveraging on this and supporting the ecosystem, I think payments, you know, will help to overall support, uh, I guess, the overall, uh, you know, coupon uh, and uh, ecosystem.
1: Right, right. That makes sense. Uh, and there's rumors. So a lot of the people, you know, first glance, you're like, oh, they're only in South Korea. That limits them on their market, right? Well, you know, the market in South Korea is pretty big, but there are a lot of rumors that coupon is going to start expanding into Southeast Asia next. I know they had job offerings in Singapore, so people were thinking that was going to be their second headquarters. Uh, do you see the model working in the region? I know each country is different, uh, but, you know, yeah. what do you think about that? Or, yeah. Brian, do you have some of that there, too?
0: Also, I know... Population density is like a big thing for coupon because they have to, it's speed of delivery and so many people live close together that it really makes their business model more effective. Especially,
1: would, especially in Seoul,
0: right? Yeah. yeah, do you think that would work in Singapore? Um, uh, I guess, to his point, do you think they can expand into other areas?
2: Yeah, so I I, I think in, indeed, uh, they have definitely had some, I think they're hiring started hiring in Singapore, I saw their LinkedIn uh, post. I think they're hiring four main positions, which was the head of retail, the head of logistics, the head of operations, and also a senior finance engineer for coupon play. I think latest positions that I'm also checking, I think they're hiring for their desktop and smart TV platforms. So the way I think about it, right, if I just try to draw parallels and try to find patterns, right, I think in South Korea, indeed, is it's very similar to Hong Kong in, in, a, in, in a in a very certain sense. It's also, also very similar to Singapore, where you have a large uh, land mass, a very small percentage of the population living in that in that land mass because there are probably mountains and all. In Singapore, it's slightly different. We don't have that many mountains. You know, everywhere is probably flat. Uh, so I think about it very high population density areas. So if I look at at it right, and if I look at it broadly in Asia, I think four kind of four countries, three countries or four countries kind of come come to mind. The first one would be Singapore. Next one would be Hong Kong. And i say the next one would then be Taiwan. Because if you think about it, South Korea is going to kind of be neutral, right? Uh, I, in the S1, they did mention that they have some China operations. But I don't think, you know, with JD.com, it's, it's going to be very tricky if they're trying to expand into China. But I think uh, I, I I think Singapore will be the closest. Uh, I think that's why they're also coming to Singapore. Now, if I think about Singapore, Singapore largely. Uh, on, on the um, e-commerce and grocery space, it's lastly been just one, one main player, which is uh, Lazada. Lazada is actually owned by, uh, owned by Alibaba. And Lazada itself has, has Redmart, which they also acquired. Um, with that, there are much more, some other smaller players. Uh, I would say that market is still fairly fragmented and it's changing, right? So I, I would love actually for Coupon to come because, you know, that, that, that in itself, I don't have to have boxes of which uh, paper boxes in which my groceries are delivered in, in plastic bags and, and i'll have them in in recyclable you know packaging because that is so that is so crucial because you save so much of the packaging and everything so actually i will look forward to what coupon is coming i think the, the thing about it of an infrastructure standpoint it is also fairly similar um very dense uh, very high-rise buildings uh, even you take a look at hong kong singapore taipei uh, Taipei is slightly different but i see singapore and ta- hong kong extremely similar very high-rise buildings, uh, streets, uh, easy easy for delivery. So I would say, yeah, I won't be surprised, you know, at, at some stage, you know, this could be some of the countries that they, they could be looking at. Yeah,
1: it'll be fascinating to see what country they go to next. Because I, I remember them saying on the conference call, like, it wasn't that if they were going to go somewhere else, it's like when. Um, but, you know, there's plenty of opportunity in South Korea. So it might be, you know, it might be a year or two or even longer.
0: Do you think there would be any Difficulties moving into Singapore? Would there be any sort of like problems? What kind of hiccups do you think they could potentially have?
2: Yeah, I, I think the, the biggest thing is because when you have such a dominant platform like Lazada, the, the, the one the one biggest counter action you will do, it's price war, right? And try to price you up. But I guess coupon has, has has that has that strong balance sheet to try to expand. And I think the way to think about it is coupon has that playbook, right? of Adopting that same playbook that they did in, in South Korea out to Singapore. And, and, and the way the way Tricky Bit as I see it, for example, in Singapore is that um, if it, I, we, will, we will go shortly. So if you think about it, it's like see like Shopee versus versus Lazada, which is Alibaba. Again, Shopee has actually gained market share versus Lazada. And similarly, I won't be surprised if, if, if coupon comes in and actually gains starting gain market share against Lazada and, and all as well. So which uh, which could be could be could be very, very interesting right but they're,
1: they're not building the end-to-end platform Lazada doesn't have the end-to-end stuff right yes exact, exactly exactly okay. and i think that if you can build the
2: end-to-end i think that would be that would be that would be really great but again you know if you think about it um the singapore economy because the population is actually quite small <laughs> i think we roughly have around seven million people or so uh six to seven million people or so it's actually a very small population right yes we you know we do spend a lot more on average versus some of our our neighbors but you know the total time is, is small, so I think I think when you think about coupon, I think they're really trying to be very um, cognizant about where where they can compete best in with what they what they know best. So I think that's kind of, kind of I think how how they're probably thinking around. It.
0: Okay, all right, we're gonna hit a quick break, and then the second half we're gonna talk C Limited. Uh, but uh, here's a quick ad break
1: All blocked. Thanks to advanced security included with Cox panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply.
0: All right. Welcome back in. Next up, we're talking C limited, uh, which we briefly just mentioned before the break. Uh, and it's a company that a lot of people love. Um, and so I want to talk first, I guess, about the e-commerce model. Uh, I know th- they grew I believe in popularity or the business model kind of stemmed from their big Garena free fire game, but Shopee is that that's the e commerce model, right? Uh, so I guess, do you see them uh, gaining operating leverage in that? Do you see
2: them kind of growing profitability at scale there? Yeah, I, I think C, C is a very, very interesting company, and obviously, uh, Singapore Singapore grown. Um, Forestly has been uh, has, has been quite, quite instrumental. I think, if you look at C e-commerce model, it's been largely 3P driven, almost the total opposite of uh, of Coupon, which is 1P driven. Uh, C really tries to, it's a marketplace platform that tries to connect really the buyers and sellers and, and, and through the logistic partners, try to it, tries to deliver it. Obviously the margins are higher, but the way of building any e-commerce platform is at the start of it, it's always going to be, you know, your profitability is good, it's not going to be there. But if you do manage to ramp it up and get it right, your profitability should be able to scale out, right? Because your fixed cost is, is there and the GMV just goes up and the profits just goes up, which covers way of your fixed costs and that drives you know, operating leverage. So the way, the way I think about it is uh, they have, when we think about it as C Limited, what they've strategically always have done is they use Garena. Garena is in the gaming business as a cash cow in every single country to, to to subsidize and to grow Shopee, that's always has been has been the strategy. So they think basically a good business, that's, that's providing uh, you know positive cash flows to support a growing business, which is Shopee. And Shopee, you know, they know of that playbook because in, in a couple of countries they are very often a bit positive, as as some sometimes some of them they are shed on the earnings call, and it's just a matter of time where you know with continuous growth they all start turning profitability. And you look at over the last qu- quarters of earnings, right? For example, in the latest quarter, the gross profit, you see improving improving profit margins. So if I think, I'll give an example, the gross profit margins for e-commerce actually went from minus 7% to plus 13%, one, three. So it's actually up 20, 20% in terms of, of, of absolute margins, right? The adjusted EBITDA margins have went from a minus 100% to minus 54%. You're seeing that in tremendous growth overall in, in, you know, in just the profit margins of the e-commerce business. Now, when you think about it, the overall business itself, uh, you're seeing declining R&D, sales and marketing, and, and g ex- and and general and admin expenses as a percentage of, rev- of, of revenues already. You can clearly see that when you see EBIT margins move from minus 37% to minus 20%. Net income margins move from around minus 40% to minus 24%. And now, was, and now, operating cash flow margins have moved from minus minus nine percent to eighteen percent. The direction is clearly very evident, and I'm seeing that quarter after quarter when I'm doing year-on-year comparisons. And and that that operating leverage is definitely showing through their financials, and that's what I'm constantly looking at when I'm reviewing every 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 um, you know C, C's earnings. I, every C's earnings, I tend, I tend to post these four charts, which I which I did on on my Twitter as well. Uh, that is what I really am am kind of am looking for, to make sure that profitability and that operating leverage really kind of kicks in. Okay. Right. And then C's
1: third pillar is financial services. I guess I have a few questions on that because it is a broad industry and, and a lot of people look at it and they're kind of like, well, financial services, I don't really know. Is it like a bank? Is it like Venmo? Um, I guess my first question on that is how are they
2: attacking uh, the market with financial services? Yeah. I think first, first, I have to address kind of like the payments landscape in Southeast Asia. I think it is very fragmented. Uh, There's a lot of domestic players. Uh, and I think consolidation will happen in, in time to come. You'll find that kind of like, again, a winner takes most kind of uh, approach. If I look at most of the markets where, where I guess, uh, C-money is or Shopee Pay is, it's largely been Lazada, or which is Alipay, again, owned by Alipay. Now, the difference between uh, Lazada and, uh, and Shopee Pay looks works like this, right? Lazada tends to adopt more of a um, strategic investor approach and a, and a third-party partnership approach, right? When you think about a strategic investor approach, you're investing in something, but you're, you're just letting them run on their own. And you sometimes you also try to have this third-party partnership, right? Which you're not fully integrating. You're just trying to partner. And when you have third-party partnerships, most of the time you're working advantages. You're working the advantages of the third party. You're also working the limitations of the third party right? Yes, that could be great because, you know, it can get you ramp up to scale very quickly, but the, you know, the, the limitations will eventually kick you. And when you have six countries with six different uh, you know, third-party partners with varying limitations, it's, it's going to eventually kick you at some stage and limit your overall growth. If you look at Shopee, on the other hand, right, they're far more, far more hands-on. They prefer the whole regulatory licenses to offer payments they actually own e-money licenses in a lot of the core countries uh, you know, that they're operating with, which in my opinion is far more crucial because you, know, you don't try to do third party. You try to actually build up the entire payments uh, infrastructure and network on your own uh, and, and, and ramp it up. And that's where I think that that ones that uh, strength uh, is there for, for, I would say, for, for C-Money and Shopee Pay. They do work with partners, right? Like for lending and insurance. But, you know, lending and insurance, these guys, these are the partners that way and they have you know, strengths, you know, economies of skill in that and debt and demonstrated expertise already in that, right? So leverage on that. You know, but I won't be surprised eventually because they have all their data, right? They can eventually do you know, something like that, right? And, and pivot in, into those 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 segments as well. But obviously that's a much longer, you know, long, longer segue of growth. Uh, and I think you know, overall, I think I think it's it's, it's a very attractive opportunity and just, and, and it complements the overall ecosystem payments definitely complements you know um, e-gaming definitely complements e- e-commerce in which, in which the space they are in
0: is there right, a uh, yeah. do you have any
2: more questions I have uh, nothing no,
0: no, is there a, a particular pillar of C Limited's business that you like or you're most excited about uh, I guess Garena's is kind of more proven so is it between uh, I, I, which pillar do you like the best
2: I I like, I like the e-commerce best because to be honest, when I, when I like when I look at Garena's e-commerce platform, it reminds me a lot of Shopify, (laughs) Mercado, Libre, uh, Amazon. I, I, I draw a lot of parallels. I see a lot of patterns, uh, and that, right. And that's why, you know, I I see that, I see those patterns in, in Coupon as well. It's like when I'm, when I'm seeing them and I'm reading the financials and reading, see the, seeing the story, seeing how they play out. It's like almost a playbook that I've seen almost like like three, four, five years ago. Right. I, yeah. So when you draw those parallels, it's like, oh, wow. Okay. You know, it, it really, it, it, it sings something with me. It rings, it rings a bell. Yeah.
0: Okay. and uh, I think Grab, uh, if I'm not mistaken, is a regional competitor as well. And they kind of tout their services like a super app. Um, do you think they're a big threat to C-Limited? I, I know they just went public and raised a bunch of capital. I think they've got like a billion dollars on the balance sheet or something like, something that.
2: like that. yeah.
0: Uh, do you see them as a threat?
2: Yeah. I, I, I think the way to think about it is, you know, it's, it's very easy to lump and say, okay, uh, I think Grab will be a competitor to see, but I think the way Grab's positioning is trying to be, is trying to be an everyday super app. I think they're trying to leverage off what they initially started off with right heading, which, which is the equivalent of, of like Uber, branching out that to payments with Grab, Grab payments, uh, ordering food, groceries now, and also having insuring and investing. Right. So I think they're trying to be the everyday app for, and I guess, for everyone. So in, in your, they probably want to be the app, you know, in everyone's iPhone on, on, the, very, on the very first page. Right. I think both can coexist. They, they are a regional competitor in a certain sense, but I think in a very limited space, because I think the, the, right now the current overlapping is really just groceries, uh, food, and uh, I think community buying, which I think C is just trying to test its waters into. I think the overlap is actually surprisingly quite small. Uh, payments could be, I think obviously Grab Payments is much larger than 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 Shopee Pay at, at this current phase because just of the GMB that they're passing through, you know, uh, the right hailing and everything else, right? So I think both can exist. There can be multiple winners. Uh, and, and, and again, a winner takes most market. I think I, I won't be surprised if, if these two companies could be some of the largest in, in Southeast Asia. Do you think that can... Do you like that
0: super app model? I know we're more focused on Seed Limited, but do you think that can work with consumers
2: where they're using one app for everything? Yeah, and that's a very, very good question because I think the way to think about it is, you know, like in the US, I, I, I was looking at apps in the US. I don't think you, there is a super app kind of yeah. model no. because you tend that. to have one app for one specific um business case, right? Unless you look at it from an Asia standpoint, like in China, for example, when you have some of the super apps like Meituan and all of them, they have apps that try to get you or like Alibaba's apps, right? You try to get an app or, or 10 cents WeChat, right? When one app does literally everything. You can have social, you can buy payments and everything, right? I think the, because of us, we value it in a sense, I think, I, I don't know if it's an Asian thing, we kind of value the sense where if convenience, where everything is just in one app, and that gives you the stickiness to that app, right? So I think that makes a lot of sense for me because, like, to be honest, if you look at your phone again, power, power play rules, right? You probably use only the twenty percent or ten percent of your apps, most eighty percent, ninety percent of the time, right? And trying to just find that all the time, I think it just makes it a lot of sim- a lot of sim- simplicity in that sense. And I, and I think that that would be a, a a powerful shift. So I won't be surprised even you know, at some stage, you know, right? I think right now, uh, if I look at it, even Shopee is it payments is all in the same same app. If I, if I remember.
1: Huh, right, that, that makes yeah. sense. All right, so the one risk people think about with C Limited, because all the business lines are growing rapidly, we're seeing the operating leverage come in, at least on an overall standpoint as well. But people talk about how the gaming studio has the potential to be a one hit wonder. Is that any sort of risk where they're using that money to fund everything else to try to build out this ecosystem? Um, I mean, so far Free Fire has had a lot of stability, but is there that risk that it's a one hit wonder with the games?
2: You know, I, I think you brought up a very valid point. I think for gaming, um, I think for Garena specifically, the power rules really apply. I think a large portion of their gaming revenues are really derived from very few popular titles. Like if I think about it, just in 2019 alone, Ninety-five percent of the revenues, of the gaming revenues, were generated by Free Fire, right? right. Which was is yes, coincidentally their first fully self-developed game. But I think about it, has largely actually been licensing games from third-party developers, right? So I, and I think the way to think about it is really two things. One, they have China gaming giant Tencent, which owns twenty-five percent of of C, and they have a first right of refusal from Tencent to distribute their PC and mobile games in their core countries. Think about it. If Tencent knows those games work and wants to distribute them out of China, they'll go to C. And what C will do, uh, and through Garena, is basically, let's test these games, right? And to see if they get traction. And and if you think, and what I've seen also is the second point, which is uh, I've seen um, anecdotal kind of get feedback that I'm hearing, is that sometimes when Garena tests to launch games, they launch games actually without a name and only the response is good, then they start publishing it under their name, which, which in my opinion, that, that, that is amazing because they're, they're trying to test, right? And in gaming, it's not, it's not like, I think this game works, I launch it with, you know, with, 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 um, with a lot of fanfare and suddenly it just doesn't work, right? Because the moment when you, when you see failures like that come, come to you, it also will affect investors' uh, confidence in, in the stock that, oh, you know, they're launching something that doesn't really work. But what they're actually trying to do is just quietly launching it at the back Reiterating the reiterating the process, and when they see that traction coming in really massively, they start marketing it big, and that's something that I think is a very nuanced um uh, observation that 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 uh, that few don't few don't see from that standpoint. Right. And, and the, way, the way in gaming as well, was, the third point I think I would like to see is always the, the QPU to QAU um, ratio, so it means the quarterly paying users versus the quarterly active users. And I think that they've actually been increasing that from about 4% in 2018 to about 12% in recent quarter. They have been increasing this number, you know, quarter on quarter, year on year. And I like that trend, right? Obviously I think that number can you know, can, can can continue to go up higher, but if that starts to decline, that, that also starts to look up. You know, I, and also I think there's some 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 of the guys also, they track um, free fire in terms of the, the activity and how is it on, on the platforms. And obviously it, it is because it, is, it accounts for the largest Uh, largest, largest, uh, you know, share of the revenues. And I think C Limited knows it. And that's why they're trying to, I would say, um, I would say take advantage of it and and, and make make as most far use of the profits generating from that gaming business to develop other verticals. And that's why I like, you know, I guess the optionality that, that, that C has from that standpoint.
1: It's the ultimate optionality business. It's all, it's like, uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, there's a reason a lot of people, uh, a lot of smart people like it, so.
0: Yeah. All right. We're going to hit our wrap up questions. Uh, I've got the first one. What is one financial saying that you disagree with?
2: That we cannot beat the market, right? I I, th- I, I think that fundamentally... Um, that, that, that is fundamentally very different, the way to think about it. I think Warren Buffett has, has a point when he says that you know, if you can't if you can't spend the time, to look at stocks and to do, do all the due diligence, you should be just investing in index. Investing in the index makes a lot of sense because if you look at it over the last you know, there's so much, so much feedback, right? Majority, about 70 to 90 percent of money managers fail to beat the market over five over three to five years, consistently, right? So even the most professional managers cannot even beat the index. Why not just be invested in the index? The argument rings, right? But I, I really feel that, you know, because we have actually moved to ETF investing and passive investing over the last 10, 20, 30 years, which makes a lot of sense. I think the, the money and the capital that, that we have been doing has gotten, you know, pardon me, uh, say more stupid, more passive. I would actually love for the money and investing to be more active, right? And that's why when, if I go back to my my own um philosophy is that in, in Vision Capital, which is really to be investing in companies that reflect our best vision for our future, that is changing and shaping the world for the better, right? I think we as investors, I'm trying to also, you know, introduce this new investing philosophy that when ultimately when we're investing in companies, they kind of have this, like, I would say this no, very nuanced ESG uh, thinking around it, or and uh, and 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 really just trying to get people to really invest better and make sure that the companies that are investing really is what they want to own and, and to drive that, right? There have been businesses that I know that could 3X, 5X, or even 10X, and I, I, I've i passed, right? Because of just, for example, gambling, right? My, like my, my family was torn apart. My parents were divorced from a very young age because uh, my dad was a habitual gambler. So when I have anything that has gambling, gambling stock, I, I just don't look at it. Right? Like for example, like FUBO TV, I was trying to look, I was taking a look at it again, and it started ending gambling and into that. And for me, that was out. It became very clear. Yeah, I know it can, yes, it can potentially go, go up more, but I know I just stopped, I just stopped looking at it because I, it's something that I don't I, I don't I don't I don't wish to be. So I'm very, I would say also making sure that the companies that are owning is very clearly driven from that angle, and that always helps. So I think really um, by showing that you know the world at that me as a, as, a, as a single person can, can beat the market with, with, with a methodology that obviously, you know, it's, it's, it's gonna be ever changing, right? It's, no, it's never gonna be one strategy that, that continuously and hence it's more principles rather than a specific way to think about it. And and of this was outlined in the book that I wrote. And I think this really just goes back to it. So I think, you know, we as individuals, I think the last year or so, everyone started doing more, buying more stocks, and, and that's great news, right? You know, individuals are starting buying more stocks and going to, instead of going to ETS. But I really wish, you know, they um, they adopted that investing approach where you try to learn and put that framework and consist, consistently follow that framework, right? Not when market prices are high, you know, you go really happy and suddenly when they go low, you start selling all of them and, 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 and starting, starting moving to different things, right? Just be consistent, you know, sell us our opportunities, add to them, you know, and just constantly add to your winners. Let your winners run. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's, always, that's always great.
0: I, uh, I think uh, Chris uh, from Growth to Value, who's kind of a friend of the show, he said something very similar, which is, you know, he, the first time we talked to him, he said, I want to own companies where I'm proud to be a shareholder. Uh, I think you, you guys kind of think alike.
1: Both see limited share. <laughs> so, uh, lots, lots to like uh, they
0: attract a certain type.
1: Yeah. So you already gave, I think, uh, a few things for, uh, for advice there, but say you're talking to someone that's considering a career in investing. What's one piece of advice you'd have for?
2: I, I think it's, it's, it's the ability to question, ability to, to find out more. Don't read what the media tells you, right? Do your deep dive, you know, spend the time. Read about everything about what a company does, right? Don't read what people are writing and why you should be buying the stock. Read the annual report. Read the 10K. Listen to the earnings call. Listen to the interviews of the CEOs, not the ones where they are on CNBC, the ones where you have a proper one-hour interview where they're interviewing them from anything of why they started the business. Why is their childhood? Why did they do this? You know How did they come to where they had been? to understand about the founders, to be understanding about the businesses. I think when you do all of that, you, you really, you understand the world better. And, and, and as that, you, you gain a better framework of how how you think about things. And, and investing, it's sometimes not just, uh, you know, re- reading annual reports or even just, you know, being on Twitter, uh, you know, listening to, listening or reading, reading what others are writing. It's really about doing your own due diligence, having conviction, I think it's conviction is, is extremely important. The stronger your conviction is, you will never worry when the stock market falls. Yeah. Like, I, I give an example, right? Like, you know, I think like, you know, like it's like so far, you know, I've, uh, we have underperformed uh, the the market this year. So so the, the callery is that I've done this, right? If I just looked at uh, the companies that I own and the, my revenues are actually, of the companies on average, actually growing about 50% year on year, right? And earnings and free cash flows are growing on average actually around 30 to 40%. Now, when I know that if my earnings and free cash flows are all growing around 30 to 40% on on any given year and the market is down 20%, I see that as an opportunity because I know the businesses that I have are fundamentally very strong in their own right and and they're growing. They're growing intrinsic value by effectively 30 to 40%. If the market falls, it is an opportunity. I will add. And I always keep a high conviction list, you know, and 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 do that. Right? So we keep keep doing that. You know, I think as 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 a career, you know, be be also be daring to 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 oppose when 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 you when you think uh, standard market thoughts could be incorrect. I think that's always to be be able to challenge the norm. Okay, oh, that's perfect. Yeah, that's
0: all the questions we have uh, for any listeners that want to. Find you?
2: Where can they do that? And What's I guess the maybe the Twitter handle.
1: Yeah, and then maybe the name of your book too, if uh, yeah. anyone's
2: yeah. interested. Yeah. So you can find me on on Twitter. So my Twitter handle is Eugene E U G E N E N G underscore V C A P, which is like Vision Capital. Uh, you can find me at uh, visioncapital.group Uh My book is Vision Investing. Uh, it's, it's it's available on Amazon uh, worldwide. You you can get it on on both the paperback and and ebook versions as well, as well.
0: Sweet. All right. Thank you for joining us, Eugene. Had fun.
2: Thank, thank, thanks, thanks, thanks a lot, Brian and Brett.
0: All right. Welcome back in. Thanks again to Eugene for coming on. Appreciate it. Next, we have our show notes. Uh, so I think recurring listeners kind of know how this goes now, but we've basically broken down the show into just random back and forth stories that we found interesting throughout the week. I'm gonna kick things off. Uh, This is kind of old news. I think it's been around for a long time, but I came across it this week and just found it fascinating. I think I initially came across it uh, listening to that Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meeting podcast, which – have you been listening to those?
1: Yeah, I do it whenever there's nothing good to listen. Usually there is, but if I don't find anything in the queue, I'll just toss that on. It's kind of my my backup plan. I figured it might take me a few years to finish, but I'll finish them eventually.
0: Yeah, I'm on, I think, 2004 at this yeah, point. I'm but I'm gonna go too. Anyway, there was a Buffett quote where it says, if you were given a punch card with 20 ticks on it when you graduated and those were the only investment decisions you could make throughout your entire career, how would you use them? You would likely be very selective and probably very rich. This type of mentality will force you to be patient. I think this is something that Charlie's kind of harped on too at one of his college speeches. Um I think it's a worthwhile exercise to kind of put that punch card filter on before underwriting any investment. Uh, And I think just asking like if this company uh, crossed out one of those 20 ticks, would you be happy with it? And then also, I think it's also kind of puts in how meticulous you're going to be in uh, your due diligence. Or
1: or, uh, not meticulous or like critical or, you know, like really have a high filter.
0: Yeah Um, I also realized uh, Like a few weeks ago Someone tweeted out One of those 13F pictures You know Everyone's doing that At that time of the year Uh, And there was this one Hedge fund in Florida With It was like A little more than 300 million dollars In AUM And it consisted of Three companies 41% Ally Financial 37% Berkshire And 22% Winnebago Industries The name of the fund Was Punch Card Capital Finally Finally drew the connection um, but it presents kind of a problem. Let's say you really did adapt or adopt this 20 punch card system or 20 ticks, whatever it is. do you think you might pass on a lot of things because you're too selective? I mean this is a mm-hmm. fund with three companies.
1: Yeah, it's interesting it's got to fit the mindset of the investor. There's a worry that is this can, going this, too far? Yeah, though? it's a worry that the system takes it too far. I think it's probably a good mindset to have when adding something new. Oh, but I really think like, all right, maybe trimming something or adding to a position that, in the real world, I don't think that would count. But maybe like you only have twenty new ideas that you can actually execute on over a certain time period, you know, or a lifetime. Yeah. That also, feels kind of right, but I think twenty is just kind of a made up number. It could be forty, it could be thirty. You just kinda of gotta think of yourself, all right, how many good ideas are there really? You may only have one or two a year. You know? I think it
0: also eliminates starter positions.
1: Yeah. And starter positions no, I kind of I don't have a big take either way. I think they're fine. You also may not need them. They, you know, they can be helpful, kind of keeping track of things, and they can also yeah. be helpful if it's a more uh, riskier position where you're not sure what the downside is, but you think the upside is pretty high. You know, something yeah. like that. I don't know. It it depends on the, the the mindset of the investor for sure, and your philosophy. Like, and it kind of comes around that question: Should you get paid to own Berkshire? and I think Tobias asked that maybe or something. They talked about that on Value After Hours. Uh, I'm not sure.
0: It is kind of, but... uh, Yeah, it feels a little weird to have your name be Punch Card Capital, like a Berkshire saying, and then you're diversified with... Three companies and With one of them Berkshire. One of
1: them is Berkshire. It is strange. I think – I mean as long as you do well, you have to have the conviction to hold that in size and most people aren't. So it's not like everyone can just do that and it's not like every individual investor is doing that. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. It's All not right. like
1: it's – not, it's not the same as holding like the spy, SPY, you know.
0: No. OK. Your story. What is it? All
1: right. This is going to be an – not an investigation but more of a – This is something that's been floating around for a while, and it's gotten pretty big, and it's stable coins. Now, if you have any confusion, please pipe in because it is a convoluted, complex system. Uh, So I thought it would be interesting to dive into these things since they fell off their pegs recently. That's kind of how they describe it. So quick explanation. A stable coin is a cryptocurrency that potentially offers better price stability because it is, quote, pegged to a fiat currency or commodity like gold It's pegged, man. Pegged like one-to-one, you know. It's pegged. It's going to be – one of these is going to be equal $1. So the most popular of these are USD coins, US dollars. Essentially, this means you are supposed to be able to trade in one USD – US dollar, excuse me, for one USD stable coin and then reverse it in the future at the same exchange rate. Hence, stable coin. The biggest stablecoin is Tether, which is USDT, and has a total value uh, from what I was looking. It could be a little different or a little higher or lower now of around $60 billion. So the big question is, why would you want this? Because it allows for unrestricted trading with other crypto market participants, while theoretically still being able to exchange for dollars one to one at the end. Now, I'm pretty sure I'm 80% right there. Or Sorry, I'm 80% sure I'm right there. But if there's any more nuances, I apologize for not getting it right. Does that – that all makes sense. You know, you don't want the volatility of say like, oh, Ethereum goes down 50%. I can't exchange it out. It's going to totally hurt this if I, if I use it as some sort of you know kinda. way to invest in something. It's all kind of magic beans but at how's this point. But how is that possible? You know, what do you mean?
0: How is that possible if you exchange
1: – I mean, I'm, No, that, so theoretically – and this is where the problems are going to come in later – you take your one U.S. dollar. Someone's paying and you switch them, it. right? Well, no, no, you just switch it with, you know, you give it to, say, Tether or whatever, like the company. They're supposed to hold the dollar for you, the U.S. dollar. And then you just reverse the transaction when you're done. Because when you get the, you know, crypto, like the only reason you're going to do this is because it allows, like, unrestricted trading with other crypto market participants, you know. So, like... If you had a U.S. dollar, you wouldn't be able to – it would be too regulated to do some of these things. But what's but the point of it, the trading? Because if, if – at the
0: end all you get is a dollar.
1: No, well, you can use it to make bets on other things and then exchange it you know, for more dollars if you get more. But I you thought when I mean? you pulled
0: it out, you got one U.S. dollar.
1: Yeah, but for one of the USDTs.
0: All right, you lost me.
1: So you can <laughs> use the USDTs to make – unrestricted trading on other crypto marketplaces so you could theoretically make some money there and then exchange it for more us dollars when you're done but the guarantee supposedly is that it's pegged so like if you make a bet with bitcoin and you get more bitcoin maybe the the price in dollars went down a ton and nothing really happened it's supposed to be you know stable and make it more of a real currency i mean there's problems and stuff but Does that make sense at all? I hope people can understand that. You're just kind of exchanging it one for one, almost like they're a bank.
0: Sure. So why does Tether do it?
1: Yeah, well, that's a good question. I mean, there's not really any real use cases right now. Uh, And there are a lot of issues.
0: And what do they do with the money? They just invest like the float or what?
1: No, no. Well, okay. Well, it's an unregulated entity, so we'll get to that. So it sounds great, right? You just trade it one for one, and then you're able to do whatever you want in these crypto, you know, crypto markets. Uh, you know, it's kind of weird. I know it knows what really goes on in there, uh, but there are some potential issues, and we'll focus on Tether here. But there's one associated with Coinbase that is doing some, you know, you might call them interesting things as well. Uh, but we don't need to focus on that one. So. I'm going to list off some suspicious things about Tether that have convinced some very smart people that there is a high chance that it does not actually have the dollars. It says it does. I'm not sure if they do, but I'm just going to read off what people have found. So they did not have a bank account anywhere in the world for six months, yet still printed $400 million worth of Tethers in the period, which is interesting. They have failed to complete an audit, a real one, not just an internal one. They had HSBC as a bank a bank that financed drug cartels. That bank fired them. So it kind of shows you the, uh, you know, one of the banks that kind of does a little bit of the dirty business. They're, uh, they, they weren't going to have Tether as a client. And now they're using a bank from the Bahamas. And there's fairly solid evidence that Tether holds crypto on its balance sheet as assets. So when it issues the USDT, DT, excuse me, its affiliated entities buy crypto, pushing the price of the coins up, making its assets that the loans are backed by go up and then allowing it to issue more USDT, US, sorry, just tethers without having dollars, which if this is all true is kind of a Ponzi scheme because they're trying to create a perpetual motion machine here. And then there's also some DeFi things, which would add another twist to the tale, but I don't really fully understand that. And that would probably take a lot more research. So maybe save that for another week. Any – for one, obviously, it's crypto, so it's as confusing as hell. Yeah. Uh, but any takeaways? Does that seem troubling? I mean, what could happen here to end it?
0: Yeah, the very – I mean
1: – Well, they don't necessarily mean, do the anything. The
0: concept of it is troubling to me, and then it's not surprising that there's all these back-end issues.
1: Well, yeah. There's no regulations – and there is a whole investigation by the Southern District of New York that has basically said that Tether is not doing what it says it's doing. Um, I don't. But people, it seems like why people this are
0: getting frustrated. They're like, you know, why aren't they cracking down on some of this Ponzi scheme stuff? And it's like they don't probably know. don't understand it like the rest of us.
1: It's really hard to understand. I don't understand it all for sure, and it's also like, all right, if they're just some. They're not in, you know. A lot of it's not hosted, or some of it's outside of, you know, it's international stuff like that. You know, you you might be in some country or region that's not really like.
0: Here's what doesn't make sense. You know, it's all
1: unregulated, so why they might not be able to do anything.
0: If you're looking for stability, by anchoring to the U.S. dollar, but your case is that the U.S. dollar is gonna die. And that's the rise of crypto. Mm,
1: Well, there's a lot of present a problem? There's a lot of contradictions, I guess. But say you're not someone like that. I mean the whole point is that it basically is theoretically supposed to give you a safer way to exchange your money for crypto, to make these crypto bets. And which, again, are not really betting on anything else except other magic beans at this point, right? If you kind of get what I'm saying, like if you're doing this, you're not like investing in a company. Um, but another question, if they're acting like a bank basically, which these people are accusing them of. This isn't bad. It's the fractional reserve stuff. It's how banks do it, you know, you loan out money, right? Yeah. Shouldn't they be audited like a bank if they're making out these loans, like say Bank of America takes in your deposits, they're not oh, holding no. 100% cash, but they're making loans that people know about, so they know how creditworthy their no, customers are. No.
0: Don't check my books, bro.
1: Yeah, I feel like we gotta check the books. Right now, only two point nine percent of their assets are in liquid cash and it is unclear what they who they have loaned money to. So if they are just loaning money to say so, you know, that they're, they're taking in USD, right? They're taking it in dollars. If they're just loaning it to other entities to buy, say, Bitcoin or whatever, and then pushing those prices up, that feels so risky to me. Um, if anyone ha- if anyone knows how this stuff works, please let us know. I'm fascinated by it, and I, I just don't think there's a good way. <laughs> I don't know how this ends, but I just don't see a way where it ends up, ends up well. I-, I don't know.
0: Okay, well, I'm going to talk about something equally confusing, which is the Scion Asset Management 13F. So Michael Burry, uh, his asset management firm, got talked about a ton over the last week, and the reason that I say it's confusing is because the way – uh, some of his derivatives get reported as holdings.
1: Big headlines yes.
0: yeah and so there was a lot of misleading headlines but I wanted to go over it a bit. Um, basically remember whale wisdom, whatever the asset allocation is when they uh, it, when, if it's like a derivative they report options as the total value and not the cost mm-hmm. basis for them. Um, so take a take that with a grain of salt but um, I believe most of the money is his own now. So uh, there's a lot of people that think this is a much bigger fund than it is before checking kind of the AUM. Remember, he is not necessarily the most uh, sociable.
1: Well, after the yeah, after the GFC, he kind of gave all his money back. Yeah,
0: he went in in house. I don't think he likes dealing with the pressure of other people. I think he likes the uh, autonomy to be able to run the fund the way he wants.
1: But he's big enough where he has to file the thirteen F still.
0: Yeah, which is kind of a brag. Um, But anyway, so his largest reported position is put options on Tesla, and it's 800,000 shares worth, so roughly 8,000 annual contracts, or sorry, option contracts. Um, And it puts exposure at almost 40% of the portfolio. But the strike and the price expiration of those are unknown. It is not as big as 40% of his money, I don't think. Most
1: likely. He probably didn't buy a bunch of. $600, $700 six hundred, dollars 700 ones, you know, something like that, that were really short-term.
0: Yeah. So the, the, I don't think the 40% is correct, but it is not. It, there's no way that something with 40% sort of gross exposure is insignificant to his portfolio. There has, yeah, there, it, this was an intentional bet. I think he was pretty vocal about it on Twitter as well. Um, there was a lot of backlash from the Tesla community on Twitter that I saw, as would be expected. As you'd expect, expect. A is. lot of people said, uh, Let's short squeeze this guy. That's right. But it's options.
1: Yeah, hey, so that no don't really work out. No, um, well, no one's gonna know. I mean, it's all no one. Look, at this point in time, I've kind of realized no one knows what they're doing, and let's just embrace it. No one's just. It's just kind of going to keep going on until everything goes, you know, whatever, yeah. keep going.
0: Also, his next largest reported holding uh, was put options on the iShares 20-year treasury bond ETF. This is – I didn't quite understand it, but this is essentially a bet that inflation is going to erode the value of long-dated government bonds. And then he coupled yeah, that and with – and
1: interest rates might go up, which are the value of those would go down. Yeah.
0: Right, and he coupled that with uh, call options on the ultra-short 20-year treasury ETF, which feels like they'd be getting – sort of a similar result. Maybe I'm wrong.
1: Yeah, maybe he just kind of was trying to find he didn't have enough, you know, like there might not have been enough demand for those type of things, so he had to spread it out to different different yeah. styles just to make the same bet.
0: And then he also had call options on Facebook and Google or Alphabet, and also a lot of people were like, this is the ballsiest portfolio I've ever seen. I don't think these are just naked options. Oh,
1: They I could don't. also be long yeah, term, I don't you know.
0: Yeah, I, I just don't see a world where the guy who invented the credit default swap didn't put a hedge in place uh, of some sort. Maybe he did. Maybe. But uh, anyway, Stop I think now. he managed his risk better than people better than what the portfolio projects. Um, and then he also had some pure equity holdings. Uh, and his top five were Core Civic, which owns and manages private prisons and detention centers. Ingalls Markets, which is, a, which is a southeast supermarket chain. Zymeworks, which is a biotech company that develops protein therapeutics for the treatment of cancer. Lumen Technologies.
1: Yeah, that's that deep value play, huh?
0: Yeah, everyone keeps looking it's, at
1: that. It's deep value. I mean, it seems like a bad business, but it's deep yeah. value. So if It's, you it's that CenturyLink.
0: Role. They just rebranded. Also, their management, I looked at the proxy. Their management got paid like 97% of their – performance-based incentives and revenue cash flow and gap profits were all down sizably Mm -hmm. from the year before so there might have been you know uh, might be some need for management change there
1: yeah Um, i don't know it looks like ingles market yeah it's trading out like three times operating income i don't know how much debt they got but that's that's another uh, he's deep value he yeah uh, that's his game
0: And then he had CVS Health, which is obviously the owner of the CVS pharmacies. And then most of his other holdings were just oil plays. He had uh, Occidental Petroleum, kind of the portfolio you'd expect, but it's always the one that makes the most headlines.
1: Well, yeah, Tesla, Burry, big headlines, big headlines. You'd expect the yeah, CVS. I guess is less of a deep value play. I don't know. We'll see what he he thinks there. Uh, He doesn't really share, so you probably never know. But it looks like those oil
0: and was pushed off Twitter.
1: He was pushed off Twitter, or the SEC recommended it. It Looks like people like Chamath have been asked to do that as well. They just didn't tell people about it because you know they haven't been. A lot of those oh. people haven't been tweeting as much too. Yeah. But yeah, the oil thing definitely worked out for him, right? Didn't uh, I? Don't really follow the space much, but these are kind of these are older bets, right? That he made in the first quarter, and uh, prices prices went up, so good for him. I find I mean, it, Yeah, he's very smart. He's usually it, right.
0: He's been, and it, uh, yeah, he he's definitely. The picture of how hard it is to be a contrarian. Yes. uh, In the moment. Because when he was on Twitter, he really got the backlash. Uh, Especially with the Tesla stuff. People were just harping on him all the time.
1: He called it top, though. Didn't he?
0: His hyperinflation takes, everyone was calling him crazy, and now it's the only thing talked about.
1: Yeah. Eh? I mean,. We'll uh, I think that's we're still, still set
0: to see whether yeah. that plays out correctly. We're but. set to
1: see if he's right on Tesla too. So far, that one has worked out, you know, better in, in his the favor. Short, in the short term, that's worked out better. We'll see. Obviously, we kind of—if you know our history—we know we, you know, we agree with him. Uh, but we'll see. We don't have any. We don't right. have any bets like we don't have the we don't have the uh, the balls that he does to. Uh, or the money. For, that's not that's not how we uh, that's not how we invest. But All right, fascinating story? to see if he's going to win. Yeah, the. Okay, so this one is from uh, PostMarket. They shared on Twitter and called it a must-read. It's called Confessions of a Capital Junkie. So I thought it would be interesting to look at it and look at an industry, uh, you know, and how, uh, how returns get generated, how, you know, returns on invested capital, all that stuff. So it is basically a summary of how the auto industry doesn't earn its cost of capital. And it was actually, fun fact, shared from Fiat Chrysler. So they made this themselves, basically like, guys... We suck. I don't know why they made this, but uh, I think... Transparency. Something about a merger, I don't know enough about it. I just read the slides. So from 2010 to 2014, CapEx and R&D spent combined went from 76 billion euros to 122 billion euros for major auto OEMs. So a ton spent on product development. On average, it takes the auto industry, or took them during that time period... Four years to reinvest their entire enterprise value into capex and R and D. Now, well, with Tesla today, I guess uh, maybe that enterprise value would be a little higher. <laughs> yeah. But if you average across that over other industries, the average is about twenty years, which makes sense. You know what I mean? It mm. kind of kind of makes sense on there if you kind of run the numbers quick in your head. And then on average, EBIT margins barely get to around ten percent for automakers in the good times can actually fall to 0% or lower meant when money or the economy gets tight. I mean, they just had the GFC as a one, one-time sample there where EBIT margins fell basically on average to 0% for a few years. And then the majority of development costs for these cars come from body, interior, paint, and general assembly, and then a few other things that are associated with those parts. That's where the majority of the cost comes for these things, and it's really hard to see how that could change. They're kind of saying like, look.
0: Well, you, you just know, don't see the operating leverage.
1: Yeah. There's no operating leverage in the bending of steel. So basically what they all added up to in the end of these slides is that their return on invested capital was less than their cost of capital. It's and always these, a good sign. These are estimates, but it's basically how they're not creating any shareholder value. <laughs> now the big takeaway I had is so, you know, commodity stocks, biotech, maybe clean energy stocks have kind of been my industries and there's other ones that I've kind of identified as, you know, never invest, no matter what, no matter how promising something looks, for various reasons. Does auto beyond belong on that list, at least right now?
0: Yeah, I, think I it would. Has to. I don't think the government uh, EV credits would be issued if this was a super high margin business. If this was profitable. They wouldn't need yeah, those, those if this was an ultra profitable business because people would feel incentivized to do it that's naturally.
1: P- yeah, that, that that makes a lot of sense. That that does make a lot of sense. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, I mean no, I, it's kind of no matter how promising something sounds, I always like just resist. Like the industry, it's just really hard to make money.
0: Yeah, but I mean that's been known for almost 100 years, right?
1: Well, it used to be better. I mean, there used to be basically everyone a used to. I mean, it's been a while, but yeah. In
0: the maybe I'm off on my time frame, but Buffett talked about this. Uh, he's talked about this several times. That that ca- oh, everyone yeah, knew yeah. cars were going to be the future. And let's say you were, uh, let's say you could see into the future and you could see roads across the entire continental United States, um, and you could yep. see cars driving yep. on them. You'd probably want to bet your money on cars. Little little. To the investors uh, who could foresee that uh, their investments would have turned out very poorly.
1: Oh yeah, I'm just saying. Like after you know when Ford and GM started dominating, I mean when they basically had monopolies, they were, uh, they, you know, they was, those are good businesses. Probably not still subpar
0: returns, but, right?
1: Uh, not sure, but uh, I really doubt it for the amount of volume they were doing. Um, <laughs> I really doubt that. But yes, a lot of them went bankrupt in like the tens and the twenties. But mm. after that, post Great Depression, I mean. They were cruising along until the Japanese uh, Toyota, you know, Honda, stuff like that kind of came in and dominated. I mean, Toyota has bucked the trend as well over the long term. It hasn't been a phenomenal investment, but... Did
0: it outperform the index?
1: Oh, I'm not sure. I don't know. I mean, overall, the industry is bad. You know, your base rates are extremely tough.
0: Yeah. Yeah? I mean, obviously, there's going to be good outliers, but I think... For sure It sounds like the industry as a whole Is not a good place to invest Alright uh, My story My next story is The ByteDance CEO is resigning So last week The CEO of TikTok's parent company That's what ByteDance is Zhang Yiming I think I'm saying that right um, He resigned uh, The head of HR Is becoming the
1: CEO Interesting choice Yeah surprise. Shout Not out
0: to usually a transition You see a lot
1: Yeah Big jump Big jump for
0: HR there. Shout out to the HR community. Um, But he wrote an internal letter to the company where he stated, the truth is I lack some of the skills that make an ideal manager. I'm more interested in analyzing organizational and market principles and leveraging these theories to further reduce management work rather than actually managing people. Similarly, I'm not very social, preferring solitary activities like being online, reading, listening to music, and daydreaming about what may be possible. That's what the founder and the CEO, or old CEO, said. Sounds like the exact kind of person I'd want to be CEO, someone who's modest and built this massive uh, tech company. Yeah, he
1: said, I lack some of the skills that make an ideal manager. I'm like, I don't know, man. You turned the business into like $300 billion. I think you've done pretty well. I don't know seems excusey
0: <laughs> he's 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 38 years old a bite dance is apparently worth 400 billion dollars I can't imagine he really lacks the skills but apparently he's taken a new role focusing on long-term strategy corporate culture and social responsibility um,
1: I don't know could it have been personal choice it's tough I don't know
0: it is, they have been they've uh, been under a lot of regulatory scrutiny.
1: Yeah, I don't know. True.
0: If I was 38, had a net worth of $44 billion, um, I don't know if well, I'd want to deal with all that stuff all the you time. You have no man. idea.
1: I mean, none of us know what we'd, if we were worth that much money. We have no idea. How
0: yeah, we I suppose, it. but I, it sounds to me like he just didn't want to deal with it anymore.
1: Maybe. I also get worried about all the basically big-time Chinese CEOs getting
0: – Yeah, Pinduoduo. Kind of, I mean, it
1: seems coinc – like a coincidence, Pinduoduo, uh, Alibaba, ByteDance, and then there's a lot of rumors about Tencent as well. They had nothing material came out of there, but those are kind of the big four, I think, at least Western facing. Oh, it's kind of it's kind of tough. It makes me uh, yeah,
0: it makes me. It's resistant. not like a bad
1: it's not a bad thing, right? Yeah, I mean, you can't like there's no way to know what actually happened. Yeah, it's obviously he probably just left, but it just kind of tells me this is another example of how I don't understand that market, and it's kind of tough to. See what's going on. I feel like I would be, as someone just over here in the United States, one of the last people to know yeah. what's going on over there. And it just makes it so tough to be an investor in China if you don't have that, uh, if you're not.
0: Uh, also, you don't know the culture. Saw this morning that Alibaba, this might have happened a long time ago, but ByteDance uh, stepped off of Alibaba's cloud computing infrastructure.
1: Mm. Oh, they quit it as a client. Yeah. Wow. That's big. I
0: think they're building their own, but
1: everyone's building cloud. got every press so You're big we're enough now e-commerce. to do it yourself. Yeah, Why we're not? building e-commerce capabilities, we're building cloud, we're building financial services. We want to be a super app. Oh, great. You're just, that's every company now. Yeah.
0: What's your uh, what's your story?
1: Okay, this is another Chinese one. Uh fashion startup Shein. Have you heard of this? I have not. Might Apparently, be Shine. What? It's Might Shein. Be shine. It's is Shein. It? Yeah, I know it's it's Shein. Okay. I have not uh, so heard S- of this. S-H-E-I-N is currently the number one top free app in shopping on the Google Play Store. I looked this morning. Yet very few people have heard about it if they're investing, why you know, unless they're under the age of 21. I think that is really where it's taking off. It is based in China and it has doubled sales each of the last eight years, hitting $10 billion in 2020. It's Crazy how no one kind of knew about this. Uh, it's trying to target Gen Z shoppers everywhere outside of China with cheap prices, and it's essentially going for ultra-fast fashion, cutting design to production time down to three days. It usually was about three weeks for one of those other fast fashion people, but like, I think it's Zara or Zora. Uh, Zara. Zara, excuse me, and like H&M, stuff like that. Essentially, what it does is it uses like its Algos data, whatever you want to call it, to forecast fashion trends in different regions around the globe and then gets them on the app as fast as possible. And on the back end, all of the suppliers are on this internal software that keep everything super efficient. There's a lot more to it, but really too much for this show. So uh, and there's a not boring article, that big tech newsletter uh, that you know you probably want to save if, if in case it ever goes public. Well, first question, does this type of app where it's kind of, you know, fast fashion, cheap prices, getting everything out quickly, you know, getting ahead of the trends based on these algos and stuff like that. Does that feel like the right model for 21st century fashion?
0: Um, Yeah. Yes, but it's getting crowded. I would say it feels like there's we've covered so many different players in this particular space.
1: Yeah, that's what I was going to say right now. We've done a lot of deep dives in the last few months on stuff like Poshmark, ThredUp, Farfetch, Stitch Fix, Revolve Group. There's others I'm forgetting. Um, After learning about Shein, which is apparently a, a competitor to these companies and bigger than all of them, I mean, doesn't fashion have to go in a lot of investors like us, guys that don't really know much about this industry? Doesn't that have to go into the too hard pile right now? I feel like everyone's reaching into these things. And... I think we're mis- not, we don't know enough. That's kind of what I'm yeah. concerned. It about.
0: might not be too hard to analyze. It might be too hard to project who's going to win.
1: Yes. Yeah. Because uh, I don't. I have no idea.
0: Yeah, the business models are pretty simple, but uh, oh yeah, yeah, who's sure. going to come along and be more valuable? It's hard to say.
1: Yeah, it's like this. This it she,
0: might be. I mean, ten years from now, it might be someone who doesn't exist.
1: It could be. Yeah, it could be Sheehan. It could be.
0: I don't I, think it'll I mean, be thread up,
1: but. ThreadUp seems like a, uh, Up's uh, It's uh, a little it? more niche. Yeah, outside. there's some tough odds on ThreadUp. Um, we'll see if they can do it. There was a few problems. Don't forget about Wish. We,
0: what? Don't forget about Wish.
1: Wish? <laughs> there's a few problems with Wish, too, but we'll see. I think it's different. That's more, that's less of apparel. Well, it's some yeah. apparel. It's basically everything, right?
0: Yeah, it's got everything.
1: Yeah, we'll see. I don't know. It's it's all it's right. so hard. It's so hard to know.
0: All right. Well, I think that's gonna do it. Thank you all for listening. Thanks again to Eugene for coming on the show. Uh, we will see you guys next time. But first, want to remind you, we are general partners at Arch Capital. So uh, there, we may have positions, security positions, and securities discussed on this podcast. I gotta get better at that wrap up. But uh, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next time.